I had the privilege this week of taking a class, and I was in Memphis all week long. Some of you were aware of that. And was, was there, and the talk about midweek became, at least for my talk, how Murray was voted America's friendliest small town. Now, I'm not from Murray. And some of you, some of you are well aware. I know you're not from Murray. You know, I know you're not from All right, now listen, all right? But I live in Murray now, all right? I work here in Murray now. I consider myself, at least to the extent uh, that I can, part of Murray. So let me tell you, I was letting them know who had the friendliest small town in America. And it wasn't any of them. I'm the only one from Murray. I said, you know, you need to come to Murray. I said, you'll figure out real quick why it was voted the friendliest small town in America. I said, because it is. And so I, I you know, was bragging on that just, just a little bit. And, and uh, you know, they kind of looked at me funny because most of them don't even know where Murray is. No offense. But they, they you know, and they said, where is Murray? And I, I kind of draw them a little picture of Kentucky. I said, you know how Kentucky kind of comes down like this? And we're over here. And, uh, oh, okay. You know, like that really helped them. But, but anyway... You know, I, I, I was bragging all, all week about it. You know, we all, uh, all who live here, and especially, of course, those who are from here, you know, just, you know, you share in that honor. You know, I know that this is a proud moment, and it should be. It's something to really take some pride in. Uh, and, uh, and all of us here, in one way or another, have helped to make that happen. You may not have voted online to vote Murray in. You may not have spoken with the committee when they came to town. But, but, but we all share in that great honor. And I really believe that our church here at Elm Grove reflects that. I really believe uh, that uh, not only do we make the best cookies, uh, but, but we, um, and I'm a little biased, i just tell you up front, <clears throat> so if you're from another church, don't take this personally, but I really believe that, that we're, we're the friendliest church around Murray and Calway County. I really believe that. Um, I, I have seen uh, in my short time that I've been here, folks come in uh, and be received and, and shaking hands and, and we're glad you're here and, and I don't see anybody who, uh, now you, you, you may be uh, that one person, I really hope not, I don't see anybody who gets shunned, nobody goes and talks to you and you just sit over in the corner by yourself, I don't see that here, and I've seen that at churches, I'll tell you that, uh, maybe you've, you've been to a church like that before, and, but I, 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 I really believe that we are the, the friendliest church in Callaway County, so we'll just self-proclaim friendliest church in Callaway County, all right, there was no vote taken, no online campaign, no committee came, we just declared ourselves uh, now, maybe that makes us the most, you know, prideful church in Callaway. I don't know, but, but I want, I, I want to, uh, this morning, from both the honor of being named the friendliest small town in America and from the Scripture, I want to give us a little comfort, and I want to give us a challenge this morning. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Now, some of you came this morning expecting Psalm chapter 3. I wrote that in the bulletin last week. It's on the marquee out front. So if your world is now shaken because I'm turning to Mark instead of Psalms, just understand there's just a couple of letters difference there. You know, it happens to be two different testaments, but it makes you feel any better. They're both short words, Psalms, Mark, same chapter, three in each one, I, you know, whatever makes you feel better. But I really was, was struck this week after having preached last week uh, and, and struck that maybe we need to interject something into our series on triumph through the tears. And I really believe that what we'll look at this morning is sort of a great midway point. We have two more messages after this in this particular series. But I really think this forms a great midway point and a segue to what we'll look at next week, which is Psalm 3, the theme being, I am not afraid. This morning, we're going to look at Mark chapter 3, the theme being, I'm not alone. So uh, Mark, of course, we have been, if you've been with us 
uh, in the last couple of months, we've been studying the book of Mark. We've gotten through a little bit of that already, and we'll pick that up again at some point. But we've been studying the book of Mark. This is a little bit ahead, or past, actually, where we've gotten so far. So, uh, so we'll revisit this at some point uh, in the next couple of years. But, um, but the story in the book of Mark is, as I've told you before, a really interesting, fast-moving story. Uh, Mark doesn't waste any time, uh, not really a waste of time, but you understand what I mean. He doesn't waste time at the beginning, kind of giving you the background information about Jesus. He just jumps into the story. And he gets rapidly through his 16 chapters to the cross. And along the way, he shows what Jesus was really about. He shows who Jesus really was. The word that's repeated over and over and over in the book of Mark is the word immediately. He's just showing you, man, this happened, and then boom, here we go over here, and we keep moving, and he's got a point that's to get up to the cross as fast as we possibly can. It's interesting that about a third of his book is devoted to Jesus' time involved with the cross and the resurrection. So he slows down at some point, but not until he gets there really quickly. All along the way, we see different episodes that Jesus is involved with about who he is and what he is about. So far in the book of Mark, just to catch you up to speed, uh, we've seen Jesus uh, call his disciples. Uh, we've seen him teach, they said, with real authority, different than their other teachers that they had. He touches and heals the lepers. Jesus is different, you understand. He's doing things that no one else would do. He demonstrates his authority over sickness and demons and the leprosy and the paralysis that he encounters. He eats with sinners, which gets him into some hot water with those who thought he shouldn't do such things. He claims for those sinners to be their spiritual physician, which is his reasoning for saying, why else would I be with them? Who else should I be with? I'm the physician. They need healing. He would go on to suspend the practice of the practice of fasting for his disciples, saying that he's the groom. They can't fast while the groom's there. You throw a party. All the while, the Pharisees are picking up on what Jesus is doing. He refers to himself as the groom. You realize that's God's language in the Old Testament for his people. Jesus is, of course, claiming to be God, which he is. He said that he was the new wine that wouldn't fit into the old system that they had created. He says he's Lord of the Sabbath, which means that on the Sabbath... He can heal if he wants to, and he can redefine what it means and tell us what it's really all about. The unclean spirits, the demons that are around, are constantly calling out, saying, you're the Son of God, you are the Lord. And it got to the point, eventually, where he could no longer enter a town without causing an uproar. People were flocking to him from all over. They came from everywhere. But through it all, there's this rising opposition. And we saw a little bit of that in our study of the first couple of chapters of Mark. They begin with some silent accusation. The Pharisees thinking when Jesus heals a, a man who was lowered down by his friends, and he tells them, son, your sins are forgiven. What do the Pharisees in their hearts say? Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus looks at them and says, why are you all thinking that? Don't you understand who I am? And so they're silently accusing him. Who does he think he is? And that leads to then opening, uh, open questioning. Why does he eat with, the, Pharisees, why does he eat with the, the sinners and tax collectors, rather, the Pharisees ask. The Pharisees ask him, why don't your disciples fast? Why do you break the Sabbath? They openly question him. And then finally, the last segment that we looked at in the book of Mark a couple of weeks ago was Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, when they moved from silent accusation to open questioning to an outright plot for his destruction after he heals on the Sabbath. So we pick up the story. All that is background to this rising opposition that's coming for Jesus. We're going to pick up the story when a crowd has again gathered and his family comes looking at him. So this morning, through this particular passage, Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, 
I want to offer you what I hope will be a great comfort and also, at the same time, a great challenge for you and for our church. I really believe that we see in this context leading up to it that Jesus knows what it's like to face the pressures of life. You may come today and you are overwhelmed by the pressures of life that you face, by the, the never-ending nature, it seems. Mark uses immediately. Maybe you could say, this happened, and then immediately, and then immediately, and it just seems to pile up. Jesus understands what it's like to live as a human in a fallen and broken world. He also understands what it's like to be surrounded by the, the neediness of people. Maybe you're in a position to where people constantly come to you and they need things from you. May it, maybe it's money, maybe it's advice, maybe it's just time, whatever it may be. You may be the person this morning who's drained because of how needy the people are around you. We probably have several people in our congregation this morning just like that. Jesus understands that. And he also understands what it's like to face the opposition from people who just don't get it. You'll see that as we move into this particular passage. So I want you to look with me, Mark chapter 3. We're going to look first at verse 20 and verse 21 to kind of set up verses 31 to 35. So Mark chapter 3, look with me first at verse 20. Then he went home, talking about Jesus, and the crowd gathered again, so they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. All right, so there's, there's what they're doing. Now, in verses 22 to 30, you have an interaction here with the Pharisees. So first he's accused of being insane. The Pharisees will then accuse him of being demon-possessed. All right, so, so you kind of understand what he's, what he's facing. I don't know if anybody's ever accused you of being crazy or demon-possessed, but if you have, then Jesus certainly feels your pain. He understands what you're going through. He covers it all, all right? Uh, in verse 31, then his mother and his brothers came. So they took off to restrain him. Now they arrive. And standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, Look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who were sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my mother, or my brother, rather, and sister and mother. It's, uh, it's a passage this morning that I, I wonder if you've uh, had any familiarity with. I would say that if you've been any time in a Baptist church whatsoever and heard someone call uh, the, the preacher brother or someone else brother, you kind of know there's a little bit of terminology here that comes from this particular passage of Scripture. And if you're not from a Baptist church and you wonder, what are those crazy Baptists calling each other's brother and sister for? Then hopefully this morning we'll kind of help you understand that just a little bit, all right? We don't have any crazy Baptists here, right? No? All right. <clears throat> uh, sorry, you just have to be there. <clears throat> I could point over here, too, but that's all right. All right, let's, let's engage with this just a little bit. I want to walk through this. I want us to learn a little bit from it. Let's understand what's going on, figure out what it meant to them, and then we'll look at some ways how we can apply this to our own lives, all right? So verse 31 and verse 32, you have the family arriving, all right? Again, if you want to make some notes in your Bible, something like that, not everything that, uh, that uh, is on the bulletin is exactly all that I'm going to say. In fact, what's on the bulletin is going to be toward the end, all right? Just so you know. You're going to have to wait if you're looking for filling in the blanks, all right? Just hang on. The family arrives. Their purpose, they say in verses 20 and 21, uh, they are going to go get him. Imagine this family meeting. They get word of all the things that Jesus is doing. They understand that he's out, he's, he's mixing it up with the sinners and tax collectors. He's out uh, interacting with lepers. 
uh, he's, he's sort of having some boxing matches, so to speak, with the Pharisees and the church leaders. His family understands and gets word of all this. Imagine the family meeting. What is Jesus doing? That guy is out of his mind. You got any crazy people in your family? Don't raise your hand. They might even be here. But, you know, everybody's probably got a crazy uncle. I got a crazy uncle. I love him to death, but he's crazy. You know, I got to see him not long ago, and he's just crazy as he ever was. He's just crazy. Family reunions, you know, you see all the crazy people in your family. I mean, this is what they thought about Jesus. They thought he has lost his mind. I mean, you look at verse 20, and it says they weren't even eating. They couldn't even eat. I mean, why would you not stop and eat? They couldn't even do that. Jesus says there's something wrong with him. So they set out in verse 21 to restrain him. That's their purpose. They're going to go get him, and they're going to bring him home. Now, their reasons for this, as we can imply from the Scripture, first of all, they didn't really understand or know who he was. Even his own family didn't get who Jesus was till much later. They didn't understand him. They knew him when he was a kid growing up. He was a, he was a carpenter along with his father in Nazareth. They, they, they look at him and they, they say, well, who does he think he is? I wonder if people ever left Nazareth. You know, Nazareth had the reputation for being a place out of which no good thing ever came. If you remember Nathaniel, when he's called to be one of the disciples, uh, Philip tells him, hey, we've found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And it's this humorous moment where Nathaniel says, Nazareth? What in the world good has ever come out of Nazareth? You know, if, you're, if you happen to be from Indiana, see, I'm from Louisville. And, and we always look to the people who are from southern Indiana. Now, not this side of southern Indiana, but right across from Louisville. You know what we always say? Now, this is going to be bad. I probably shouldn't even say this. But we, we, we used to always say that the only good thing that ever came out of Indiana was I-65 South. Just right down into Louisville. That's what we used to always say. But, you know, that's the same kind of concept that they think of Nazareth. They think nobody ever comes out of there and does anything any good. Imagine the people of the town saying, why would you leave Nazareth? Now, some of us here, because we're from the friendliest small town in America, cannot imagine, cannot imagine why anyone in their right mind would ever want to live somewhere else besides Murray, Kentucky. We just proved why you should never leave. It's the friendliest small town in America, for crying out loud. Some would look at folks that have grown up here and have gone on somewhere else to say, well, you'll come back. It'll draw you back in. It's a friendly small town in America, you know. It'll draw you right back in. Some look and say, you're crazy to ever want to leave here. And some, you may be here today or have someone in your family, you may be this person that has left where you're from and, and had your family think, you're just getting a little carried away. Who do you think you are? If that's you, if you can imagine either side of that, you get a picture of what's going on with the family of Jesus. Why would he leave? What are you doing? Who do you think you are? There's a great scene from a movie called Ratatouille. If you have young children, you'll know the movie Ratatouille. Now, it's a movie about a rat who happens to be a world-class cook. It's a, you know, it's animation. It's not, not a true story. Okay? <laughs> Just in case, I mean, y'all are leaning in like, man, oh, man. All right? Not a true story. But in the movie, Remy, the rat, who's the great cook, he, uh, he, he gets separated from his family, and he winds up in the kitchen uh, of this incredible French restaurant in Paris. And he uh, sort of 
behind the scenes becomes this incredible cup. I won't spoil it all for you. It's a great movie. It's based on a true story. How about that? And, uh, <clears throat> but anyway, so he eventually is reunited with his family, and he has this interaction with his dad, and his dad is on him about, why have you left us? Well, who do you think you are? And Remy, he says, well, Dad, you know, at some point I had to leave the nest. And his dad says, we're rats. We don't leave our nests. We make them bigger. That's what he says. He said, you're crazy. I hope you get the picture of what Jesus was, was receiving from his family. He said, we don't leave the nest. What are you doing? You've got to go get him. They didn't understand who he really was or why he came. They didn't get it. Not only that, but their reputation was on the line. You have to understand that during this time, family honor was a huge deal. And, and in our world today, we get a little bit of this. Depending upon where you're from, family honor may mean a little bit more in some places. But their reputation was on the line. He was becoming an embarrassment to the family. They weren't so much concerned about him being an embarrassment to himself as they were about how it reflected upon them. After all, they're just good Nazarenes who grew up working hard. And who does he think he is going out and drawing all this unwanted attention to the family by mixing it up with sinners and tax collectors, by touching lepers, and by having boxing matches with the Pharisees? Who does he think he is? This is reflecting poorly on us. So they're out to guard their collective honor. So when they leave and go to talk to Jesus, they don't come as cheerleaders with pom-poms. They come as the guys in a white coat with a straitjacket. I mean, they're going to get it. They're going to restrain him and will take him by force if necessary. So those are their reasons. They don't understand who he is, and he's dishonoring the family. When they show up, and it is said, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters, verse 32, are outside asking for you. Here's the expectation that would have been had in that moment. It would be expected that his family would hold a claim on him that would obligate him to leave what he was doing, to go with them, and to go home and live with them. That was the expectation. When your family shows up, they say, you, you belong to us. You need to come with us. And the crowd gathered around him would have expected that, well, I, I guess he needs to go. Well, you kind of set that up. Family thinks he's crazy. They show up. They don't understand who he is. He's dishonoring the family reputation. They expect that when they call for him, he will immediately get up and go back with them because family was of tremendous importance. Surely he understood that. Surely he knew that his identity and his status and where he's from and his economic possibilities and his reputation are all bound up in his Jewish family. You know, for the Jew, obviously, family lineage was a huge deal. In two gospel reports, we have the family line of Jesus to prove who he really was. And in one of those in particular, in the book of Matthew, it proves that he was Jewish. It's a big deal. He was an heir to the promises of God. Kinship during that time meant never being alone. Always having people you could trust and always having people around. And certainly for, for many of us here, family like, like for us, it was the same for them. It's a source of joy, a source of support. So they expected that he would get up and leave. But look at verse 33. He replied to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now it seems like an obvious answer. Well, we just told you. They're outside, knocking on the door, and saying that they'd like to see you for just a few moments. Maybe he's proving he's crazy after all. He doesn't truly understand. He's not all there. That's a rhetorical question, of course. He says, who are my mother 
and my brother. I love the next part. And picture yourself in this room. It will make you all nervous. I'm just kidding. He comes into the middle of the room. There he is standing. All the people gather around him, and they're pressed in as many as they can pack into this little house. And he says to them, they, they, the family knocks on the door, and they say, hey, family's outside. And he says, who's my family? And looking about those who are sitting in a circle around him, now you think about the look that he gives them. They're, they're expecting that it's time for him to get up and leave. But here he is, stands in the middle of them, and he looks around. I mean, imagine the gaze. He just looks at them. Sort of a warm smile on his face, I'm sure. A comforting look. He just makes eye contact, maybe gives him a little wink, lets him know you're all right. A, a warm, friendly sort of look as Jesus pans that crowd that's sitting around him. And then he says, here. Here are my mother and my brothers. Imagine what they feel in that particular moment. These folks who probably in themselves have left their families to come and follow him. And he now leaves his family and redefines what the family of God is all about. Isn't it interesting? He just comforts them, loves on them, and he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. I love that. That little part. Sometimes we read through the story and we, we never stop to, to sort of imagine in our minds what he's doing, what he's, what he's about. Now these would be very shocking words. I just painted you a scene that was very warm and friendly. As warm and friendly as it was, it would have been equally shocking for him to say this. Normally families, if you see what Mark is doing here, families normally were on the inside of the house. The crowds were on the outside. But what does he do? He reverses it. Those who are truly Jesus' followers are on the inside with him. And then everybody else sort of stands on the outside with some false expectations, thinking they're in, but not recognizing that they are not truly his followers. Jesus does the unexpected. He behaves toward his kin like someone normally would to the crowd. He does the unexpected. And he dissociates himself from the authority of his earthly family. Now, certainly that ran in opposition, direct contrast to what most people would do and tell you to do during that day. Because by rejecting his family, he was running the risk of losing his family. He was running the risk of being cast out of it and essentially being declared dead and thought of as being non-existent. So he appears here to be throwing his life away by rejecting those who would seem to know him and love him best. So it's equally warm and shocking all at the same time. And then verse 35, he gives his explanation. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. His true family includes those who do the will of God. The will of God, of course, in very simple terms is trusting and obeying Jesus Christ. Very simple terms. That's what the will of God for your life is. You say, I don't know what the will of God is. Start there. Trust and obey Jesus Christ. And I mean that sincerely. You may be searching today like a needle in a haystack for the will of God. But if you miss trusting and obeying Jesus Christ, trust me, you have missed the will of God. You've missed it. He says, whoever does the will of God is in my true family. He redefines what the family is and, and who's in it. The Jews during this time assumed that by birth, 
they were simply a part of God's people. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, well, hold on. There's no one who can claim a relationship with Jesus just because of the family you're born into. Now, this is important for us in church. Very important for us. There are some folks here, I would guess, who are either here this morning or you know someone who is like this. They assume that because they have been born into a Christian home, because they have been raised in a Christian home, because they are in church even today or have been in church, that somehow that automatically guarantees that they are a part of the family of God. Jesus is saying, you know what, that's what my family, my mother and brothers, that's what they thought, my physical mother and brothers, they thought that just because they're related to me, that I had grown up in their home, they're automatically in. Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not those who are just born in a certain home, raised in a certain family, grow up in a certain church. It does not automatically guarantee that you have a relationship with Jesus. And in the same way, there's no one who is prevented from that family relationship with Jesus Christ because of the family you're born into. We need to understand that as well. That your family does not preclude you from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a direct contrast that Mark gives between those who are on the inside and those who are on the outside. Those truly on the inside, truly in the family, they are the ones who sit at the feet of Jesus. They're close to Him. They're obeying Him. They're doing His will. Those who are on the outside, they stand there thinking they're in, but they have false assumptions because they're banking on all the wrong things. Well, I grew up in this family. I grew up in this church. I've been going there forever. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's only through a close relationship with Him that you're in the family of God. Those who do God's will, those are the ones that enjoy those family blessings. That's what's happening here. Now, if you think about how we can apply this to our lives today, we see that truth. You first think of what would this have meant for them? How would they have received this? Well, for them, it would have been a great comfort. Because many of those early Christians, if you read through the, the, the New Testament, you'll realize, you study a little bit of church history, you'll realize that many of those early Christians had to leave their families. When they were in Jerusalem for the festival of, of uh Passover and Pentecost came and all that stuff, and they were converted to faith in Jesus Christ, you know what they probably in many cases couldn't do? Go home. You see in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, how they shared and they took care of one another? You realize why they had to do that? Especially the way that they had to do it? Because they had so many people who had nowhere else to go. They, they, they lost everything because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And this was a great comfort to those who had left their families. When, when they read this Gospel of Mark, they think, praise God. I've not lost my family. I've gained the family of God. It's great comfort to them. It's also a great challenge because they recognize that, yes, indeed, attachment to Jesus Christ has a cost. It has a cost. It even cost Jesus himself in this particular scene because he had to say no. To his family and yes to the mission that God had sent him for it has great implications for us it's interesting there are no imperatives no commands in this particular passage Jesus does not say go do this this and this so we'll infer from what the the uh, the passage is saying uh, some principles for us to to go by the one that you'll see there in the box on the back of your bulletin if you can remember this about being in the family of God Having come through Jesus Christ for salvation, remember this, you are not alone. 
That's a great comfort. You are not alone. And the challenge is, don't be. <laughs> You're not alone, so don't be. You are, you are not alone. You may feel like it. Jesus felt like it, I'm sure. You realize he was as much human as we are? He was absolutely God, but he was absolutely human all at the same time. If we paint this picture of Jesus, he just kind of floated through life, nothing affected him. He didn't have anything go wrong for him. You are painting an, an unrealistic picture of Jesus Christ. He understood what it's like to feel alone. And so did every disciple that he had and all the followers of Christ throughout the ages. You may feel like you are alone from time to time. The demands of life, Jesus felt that. All the people who are clamoring for his attention, everybody who needs you, he felt that too. Maybe you've faced the opposition and the resistance from your family. They've looked at you and you've, you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you're the only one in your family who's done it. The only one. And now they, they think that you just look at yourself as a little bit better than them. Oh, you don't go to church, huh? Well, that's good. Oh, you're not going to go and hang out with us anymore. Oh, okay, all right. So you don't do that. You don't say those things. Who do you think you are? There's some here that have dealt with that. You're the only believer in your family, and they look at you like you have lost your and they accuse you. They don't really understand what you're about. You may feel like you're alone because of those things. You may also, as we read this scripture, feel alone because you begin to recognize who gets it and who doesn't. Who's on the inside with Jesus and who's on the outside. And you begin to look at your family, your physical family, and you say, oh my goodness. I don't have as much in common with them as I thought I did. Maybe you begin to feel alone. You may feel like you are alone, but I want you to know this morning, you are not alone, so don't be. You're not alone because you have a brother in Jesus. You have a brother in Jesus. Now, this morning I came in, I was sitting at the computer in the back, and I was typing these things in to put on the screen, and Hank, my son, was with me. And I'm typing this in, and he's just looking exactly what I'm going to type in there. And he said, Dad, what is that? have a brother in Jesus. Now, let me just tell you a little side piece of advice. If you're a teacher, Sunday school teacher, if you can't explain what that theological truth means to a seven-year-old, then two things. Number one, do your homework and, uh, and, and figure it out. Or number two, take a little bit of a break and go do your homework with some seven-year-olds, all right, and try to talk to them and then come back and teach your class again, all right? Hank said, Dad, what does that mean? Well, Hank happens to have a younger brother named Duke. I said, Hank, do you know how much you, you love Duke? Duke's a year and a half. He said, yeah. I said, you know how much you just love to be with him, kind of wrestle around, have some fun, you like to talk with him, and, and you just like to hang out. Hank, one of Hank's favorite things to do is have Duke come, and we, when we say their prayers at night, he wants Duke just kind of lay down next to him in the bed. They both just giggle and laugh, and it's hilarious. But I said, you know how much you love Duke? He said, well, yeah. I said, well, I said, the Bible says that Jesus has that same kind of love for us. He loves us like we're in his family, like he's a brother to us. So that's how he loves, he wants to be with, he wants to show his love toward us. You've got a brother in Jesus. Those people that were sitting there at his feet recognized this guy is with us. They were the ones sitting at his feet, the ones doing his will. 
I want you to know that if you want to experience what it truly means to not be alone, to have the brotherly kind of relationship with Jesus Christ, just like these people in the story, you've got to be with him. I don't mean this in a condescending way, but I, I want you to know that if you're coming to church and that's the only time of spiritual involvement you have with the Lord, you're missing out on an awful lot that Jesus has to offer. I mean, I hope that you interact with the Lord on a Sunday morning here at church. I hope you worship, and I hope you receive the truth of God's Word as I preach it. But that's like eating one meal a week. You don't starve. If you truly want to experience the blessing and the benefit of knowing Jesus as your brother, then you've got to be with Him. That means taking time during the week as a discipline to read the Word that He's given us, to spend time in prayer on a daily basis. That's what it means. And the results of that are that not only do you experience His love as a brother, but you understand and receive Him for all the roles that He plays. He's our priest, the one who goes to God on our behalf. He's our king, our advocate, the Bible says. He's our substitute as we see Him dying for our sins on the cross. He's our righteousness. In our sin, He gives us all His righteousness, and now we stand before God with Jesus covering us. He says he's the bread of life. He's living water that we never go thirsty spiritually again when we are with him. He's the light of the world, and he would later say he's our good shepherd. That's who you get when you have that kind of relationship with Jesus Christ. You receive all those blessings and benefits, but it's only for those who trust him and obey him. It comes with great comfort and challenge because those things are incredibly comforting. Praise God for all He is, but it comes with a challenge because there's a cost. There's a cost to that. But I want you to know, not only do you have a brother in Jesus, but you also have a family in the church. This may be your first time here. This may be not your first time here. You may be an Elm Grove veteran. Been here a while. But I want you to know that whether this is your first time or whether you are a veteran attender at Elm Grove, you have a family in the church. I experienced this when I was in high school in a secular way, and I'll explain it to you. When I was in high school and playing baseball at Pleasure Ridge Park High School in Louisville, PRP, we called it the PRP Baseball Family, which meant that once you're in, you're in. And you just wear some red and black occasionally and put those PRP letters on and and if Bill had played at PRP a couple of years before I did, and we interact in a conversation, guess what? I've just found another PRP baseball brother. And we just sit and talk. We may have nothing in common except for the fact that we played at PRP together, maybe, or at separate times, and we just get along. There's so much to talk. We tell our stories. We relate to one another as if we're family, even though maybe we're not born in the same family, don't have a ton in common, and that's about as good as I can relate it to what the church ought to look like. We may not have everything in common. I can't fix anything. I don't grow stuff in the ground. Some of you are great at fixing things and are wonderful farmers. But I tell you this, even there are things, though there are things that divide us based upon what we have in common and the families we've come from, and the fact that you may not appreciate that I'm from Louisville and pull for the Cardinals, God's team, but you may not appreciate that. <laughs> And the Reds, which, of course, is God's other team. But, but you may not appreciate that, but let me tell you this. 
in the church, you have a family that transcends all of that. It goes far beyond all of that stuff. It goes so beyond that. You look around today. If I were to get a show of hands, we probably have about half the people that grew up in Murray, probably about half the people that didn't. And then a few folks who say, I don't want you to know where I grew up. They wouldn't raise your hand at all. I don't want you to know my family. But it transcends all of those things in the family of God. You're never alone in the family of Jesus. You know, we're voted the friendliest small town in America. And I, I honestly believe that we have the friendliest church here in Callaway County. But let me tell you this. I believe that we've got to go a step further than that. That we cannot be content or satisfied to remain at just being friendly, a handshake distance from one another. Say, hey, I'm glad you're here on a Sunday morning distance from one another. That's awesome, and I love that about this church. But I really believe that in the church, we must take it a step farther. That no one, regardless of how long they have been here, no one is alone in our church, that no one should receive just friendliness, but should also be offered a chance at the family relationship that we share here in this church. You realize there's a disparity, a difference, between our worship attendance numbers and our Sunday school attendance. Now, some of you follow this. Some of you don't, don't know this. Just, just for example, last week, we had about, I think it was 168 we had in worship in here, including the children. I think we had, what was it, 86 is the number for Sunday school, something like that. There's a big difference. It's about double in here what we've got in there. Uh, you realize that, that there are a number of people who attend in this particular service who really, their connection to this church is me. You say, well, that's pretty arrogant. No, I'm just telling you. They don't know a whole lot of other people. They're not, they're not really interacting with a whole lot of other people. I'm not trying to be arrogant with that. I'm just saying, I'm just, let's say what it is. Some of you are like that this morning. That, you, you know, we know one another and we've got to know that's great. I love that. You realize there, there are countless people in this church whose lives are a mystery to other people throughout the week. You see them on Sunday, but you really don't know what they do. You don't know who they are. You don't know where they live. You don't, you don't, that, that's pretty natural. I'll just tell you in a church, pretty natural. But, but my prayer, quite honestly, for this family of God known as Elm Grove Baptist Church is that not for the sake of numbers, but that we would shrink that gap between who's coming to worship and who's coming to Sunday school. You know why? You know where you get to know people? You don't get to know them right now sitting around. Some of you want to talk to your neighbor right now, but you figure that'd be disrespectful to me. So you don't talk that much during the sermon. You don't truly get to know people right in here, do you? We get you about, what, three to four minutes of handshaking time, and, man, you're scrambling all over the place and running, trying to say hello to everybody, but you don't truly get to know people until you're with them in a little smaller group. A little smaller group. I would love to see us for that purpose so we can have a, a family of God that represents everybody and includes everybody. Shrink that gap. Love to see that. Not so we can say, well, look at our Sunday school numbers. I don't care about that stuff. The Kentucky Baptist Convention may be proud of that. That's great. I don't care. I want people to get connected to the family of God. That's what I want. I, I hope that, that some of us here 
will recognize the people who are not connected. I mean, if you look around this morning, you, you'll recognize faces and you say, I don't know who that person is. <laughs> I'm not sure where they go every week. Maybe you'd invite somebody this morning before you leave. You'd invite somebody to your Sunday school class. I wonder when the last time was that you invited somebody. I mean, really. That's, that's why people come. You know that, don't you? They don't come because I tell them to. They come because somebody's invited them to go. They like the connection. I wonder if, if you, that person who's not involved right now anywhere, if you'll respond to that invitation. You realize it's a two-way street. You realize that it's a two-way street. Someone extends the invitation. Someone offers the opportunity. Let's be in a relationship as a family of God. You have to respond to it as well. You want to not be alone in the church. There's going to be a time when you've got to take a step and put yourself out there just a little bit. There's going to be. That's just part of it. I wonder if you'd recognize those people, try to engage with them, take that step. Maybe you'd see yourself as a missionary, as a pastor, as a minister to the people who sit around you on a Sunday morning. You know one of the things I love about our church? We sit in the same spots every week. Now, some have been displaced this morning. I'm seeing you. That's okay. Some feel a little uncomfortable right now. A little bit displaced. But let me tell you something. I really like the fact that we sit in the same spots. You know why? Because if someone comes in, they're going to see the same people every single week. Now, here's the problem that comes in. Two potential problems I see. Now, I would have a problem sitting in the same spot. If you walked in, somebody's in your seat, and you asked them to move. Now, we're going to have a conversation about that. All right? We're not going to go and ask anybody to move. You may get a little irritated, but all right. But I tell you what, the great benefit is that if we sit typically around the same people, we can minister to them week after week after week after week. You get to know them. If a guest comes in, they sit close to where you normally do. Listen, I tell you what, you feel the empowerment to go and shake a hand with them and say, hello, how are you? And tell them your name, and you get to know them a little bit. I would hope and pray that that's what's going on in the pew. Because trust me, I get 20 seconds with everybody as they walk out the door. It's hard for me to get to know everybody just like that. I'd love to. I'd love to be able to sit down with everybody. But it's going to make more impact when you do it than when I do it. I'm expected to do it. And I'll do it. And I have no problem. I love that part of my job. But I tell you what, when the family of God begins to do those things, there is something powerful and impactful. So if people here at Elm Grove don't experience what it's like to live in a family of God, guess what? It's on all of us. We've all got work to do. So you've got a family in the church. And then finally, you have a responsibility to others. This isn't about doing away with your physical family. That's not what I'm talking about. This isn't about going and starting a cult, okay? It's not what I'm talking about either. This isn't about ignoring those people that you are blood relatives with. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it is quite the opposite in the sense you have a responsibility to other people. As a member of the family of God, you have a responsibility to those who are on the inside of God's family and those who are close to you, meaning maybe those people that are both Christians and blood relatives. Responsibility to take care of them. Those who are Christians and in this church or your neighbors have a responsibility to them. We also have a responsibility to those who are inside the family of God but are distant. You realize we get blinded here in America quite often to the plight of those who live as our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. That They're in hiding today. They're not in laughing in a church service and enjoying uh, the, the freely preached word of God. They're in hiding somewhere. We have a responsibility to them. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a responsibility to those who are outside the family of God but are also close. So this may be your, your blood relatives who don't know Jesus. 
Your, your people here in the church that you say, I don't know if they truly know Jesus. They're here every week, but I don't know if they know him. Or your neighbors. You know, you've got a responsibility to them. And then also the responsibility of those who are outside the family of God and are also distant. That's why we send missionaries. That's why I, I, I'm proud to be a part of what the Kentucky Baptist Convention and Southern Baptist Convention do. We, we pool our resources and we send people out to go reach people for the gospel. We've got a responsibility to them. You are not alone. That's the comfort. The challenge is, so, so don't be. I wonder, are you in the family of Jesus this morning? It's not by physical birth, but by spiritual birth. Jesus himself said that in John chapter 3. Those who do the will of God, trusting and obeying Jesus. Are you a member of the family of Jesus? Have you come to the point where you've said, Jesus, I give you my life, asking for your forgiveness and trusting you for my salvation? You can do that this morning. A simple prayer to him. I wonder if you are in the family of Jesus, are you living alone? And if you're living alone, what needs to change in your life? And I wonder, does anyone live alone in this church? And church family, I wonder if we recognize people do live alone here, what needs to change here? How can we engage them as members of our family? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the family that you have created through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have a brother in him, that you are a heavenly father and you sent him. We thank you for the family we have here at this church. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize and make whatever changes are needed to include those folks who seem to be outside of this family. God, help us with our responsibility to others, our brothers and sisters in Christ, or those who need Jesus. Pray that you would inspire us and change us this morning. We pray in his name.